HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's Monday, and it's 12.01. It's time for your favorite program. Listen to Aunt Katie as she tells you what's wrong with the world and how to fix it. No, we're, <laughs> we're going to start. <laughs> oh, Dave, I like that. Thank you very much. Yes, gather around me, children. Um, first up is we're going to have some joys and sorrows because we have a few things to discuss that, about that. And then afterwards, we're going to be interviewing a journalist named David Dayan, whose byline, um, I realize, is kind of ubiquitous, but he was a new find for me and a very smart man indeed. But to start with joys and sorrows, this was brought to my attention by Alicia Fowler from Chef's Collaborative. Thank you, Alicia. The FSIS, which is the Food Safety and Inspection Services part of the USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture, is proposing that... some new rules that would permit meat producers to use terms like, quote, raised with care or, quote, humanely raised on sustainable family farms, end quote, simply by making up their own definitions for the terms. Each company's definition of humanely raised would be entirely arbitrary and regulators could perform, would perform no inspections to verify any of their animal welfare claims. That's the end of the quote, which was in the Huffington Post. This article was in the Huffington Post on October 13th. I highly recommend taking a look at it. Um, And there is a 60-day comment period, and you can be part of that process, um, either by going to the HuffPost on October 13th and finding the link, or go to the regulations.gov website and look under FSIS, Food Safety and Inspection Services. Um, It's an eye-opening idea. With all the confusion around labeling in this country and... um, the, you know, the, how hard it is for consumers to decipher exactly what is meant by what term. The idea that we we literally do not have a gold standard for sustainably raised or human, you know, is, is just crazy. But I have another item about this, which I'm going to tell you in just a second. Um, the other cool thing that's happened, or rather, that was our sorrow. This is our joy. The cool thing that has happened is there is a new climate change deal. I'm sure a lot of you saw that. Uh, 200 nations are committing to reducing HFCs, which are the chemical 
chemical used in air conditioning and refrigerators. Um, it's a long, long, long timetable reaching way out into the 2030s, and um, let's hope that we don't immolate before then. Um, but at least it's a beginning. Now, how you sell not using air conditioning to countries that uh, are on the cusp of grasping it, like India, uh, and yet it's sort of like telling them they can't eat beef. Oh, no, no, no. It's not good for the planet. So now you can't have it. Um, that's kind of colonialism uh, 2.0, right? Okay, next up, uh, here's um, here's something that's, as I like to say, in the gray area. Um, <laughs> this is uh, that McDonald's, yes, our very own McDonald's, of fast food fame is leading the pack and testing out something called a sustainable beef op- option. They just completed a very small pilot project in Canada with the Canadian Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. And there's one of these Roundtable for Sustainable Beefs in virtually, uh, well, I'd say probably about 25 nations. Um, and they are in the, pr- in the process of this pilot, and this is what relates to our first, um, our first item about the FSIS and labeling. They are identifying what, quote, sustainable means in terms of cattle, and then figuring out how to score ranchers and packers on how they measure up to the, whatever that elusive term is going to be. To learn more about the criteria that governs, quote, sustainability in the cattle industry, you need to visit the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. The Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. Now, this was started by McDonald's, by JBS, uh, Cargill, you know, some of the really, really big major players in the cattle industry. Uh, this was this is their sort of version of greenwashing. I mean, it probably does contain some forward-thinking ideas. Certainly, deforestation is all over their website. So it's clear that they know what they are doing wrong, because <laughs> you can see that on their announced goals. But the problem is, is that the way beef production is practiced right now by the big players, the JBS, the Cargill, the Tysons, the, you would have to literally uh, completely revamp the industry to get rid of the problems that make it unsustainable. Um, still, if they addressed uh, fair wages, for example, instead of the near slave wage that they uh, deploy now, and also, um, you know, a little bit of pollution mitigation, a little bit of help to those farmers, those feedlot owners, like to help deal with the endless river of shit and piss. I mean, these guys really have it tough, and the big packers do not pay for that. The farmers and ranchers are in charge of taking care of that or the guy who owns the feedlot. So, um, you know, I know it's hard to be feel sorry for them, but uh, but really that is a major issue is disposal of waste, animal waste. It's why the aggregated intensive confinement uh, is simply not an option and has to be dismantled in ways which I am not smart enough to have figured out yet, but um, somebody will, I'm sure. Um, And uh, I just wanted to mention that, um, speaking of good things, Tom Philpott, one of my favorite guests here who writes for Mother Jones, and you should all be following him on a daily basis. He's incredibly prolific and so smart. Uh, Tom reports that Tyson has just acquired 5% interest in Beyond Meat, a company that produces vegetarian burgers that, quote, bleed like real meat. Woohoo! Makes sense, right? Meatless burgers, non-dairy products are generating nearly $5 billion in sales now. And who better to make fake meat than meat companies? I, for one, am hoping these substitutes really catch on and that more of the big companies do start to shift away from peak meat production as we have it now. 
And last on my agenda, and I always make this segment way too long, and then I have to speed it up and then nobody can hear or understand what I'm saying, but I'm going to try to be uh, calm here. And that is that Bob Dylan, If I'm sure you've heard this, but Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And I just, I could not be more delighted. I, I think of him as sort of the poet laureate of, of every man. I grew up with his tunes. He's an amazing songwriter. He's like a Woody Guthrie. Um, anyway, I was delighted. I know other people thought it was maybe not so great, but who cares what they think? So let us now uh, take a short break for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with uh, David Dayan, a journalist who writes about economics, economics and finance. He'll be talking with me about the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership and a little-known clause within that uh, that we should all be paying attention to. So stay tuned. New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. Okay, we're back. It's This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I think I might have even forgotten to announce that before. I was so excited about starting the program. Um, but yes, that, that that is the name of the program, uh, What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. And my name is Katie Kiefer. Um, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. And today we are going to talk with uh, David Dayan uh, about TPP and a clause within TPP that should have everybody um, somewhat alarmed. It's called the ISDS uh, or the Investor State. Uh, dispute settlement. Um, but to go back to David for a second, David is a journalist who writes about economics and finance. He is the author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, uh, which came out, I think, just this past spring. Um, he is the winner of the Studs and Ida Turkle Prize. He is a contributing writer to The Intercept and a weekly columnist for The Fiscal Times and The New Republic. He also writes for The American Prospect, Vice, The Huffington Post, and many more. He lives in Los Angeles, and thank you so much for joining me on the program today, David. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I, you know, now that I, now that I've discovered you, I, I see your byline everywhere. But um, no, I was just delighted to uh, read up on TPP. A Trans-Pacific Partnership is something that you know I, I think is kind of heaving its last gasp, but it still bears talking about only because uh, it was a template for a trade deal that uh, really had people's milk hot uh, on all sides of the uh, of the equator. Um, can you? Uh, and you wrote a lot of pieces about TPP and specifically about the Investor State Dispute Settlement, ISDS. What got you so interested in this? Well, uh, coming out of the 2014 election, uh, which was a, a 
fairly historic sweep for Republicans and, and gave them high watermarks not seen since the early 1930s in Congress and, and, and all around state houses across America. Uh, it was clear that uh, in this last two years of the Obama administration, their belief was that the only thing they could get legislatively uh, uh, to salvage anything would be on trade agreements. Uh, that was their game plan since the day that they lost in, in 2014. Uh, eventually, they went through and uh, got the fast-track legislation passed, and, and that uh, enables a process whereby trade agreements that are negotiated by the president uh, and, and the U.S. Trade Representative's office can come back to Congress and go through a, an expedited process without filibusters, without possibility for amendment, uh, that just an up or down vote in both legislatures, uh -huh. uh, both houses of Congress. And so this, you know, the fact that they got that passed and then they followed that up by, by completing the negotiations on the Trans-Pacific Partnership just seemed like that would be the fertile ground by which uh, the Obama administration would, would try to sort of put a cap on their legacy. And so that made it interesting to me to see what, just what was in these agreements and what, mm -hmm. is, uh, what was the purpose of, of doing more trade agreements with countries, uh, you know, half of which in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we already have bilateral trade agreements with. So yeah. what was the need here? What was, what was the desire? Tariffs are already pretty low. Uh, there had to be some other motive for pushing forward a deal like this, and that led to my exploration. It, very interesting. So um, give us a give, tell us a little bit about this investor state dispute settlement, because I I just finished writing a book about the meat industry. And that's where I heard about that mechanism mm -hmm. and uh, was duly horrified. So can you just tell the listeners, you know, what what actually does that mean? It's sure. been around for a long time, but it's it seems to be expanding. So, yes, so go I, ahead. yes it's been around since uh, uh, trade agreements, I think, in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Um, and basically, it is the mechanism by which disputes within trade agreements can be adjudicated. The initial theory was that if you do a trade agreement with a developing country and you induce uh, investors from your country to go over there and invest in, in a foreign country, mm -hmm. And a problem arises. They, uh, their factory is taken over by the state, or they, uh, you know, their goods are expropriated in some way. Uh, they, the investors felt like they wouldn't get a fair shake from that country's government right. uh, and, and from that country's judicial system in particular if they were to dispute the fact that their, you know, their factory was taken over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they put in this mechanism whereby it would take it out of the judicial process of that country and put it in the hands of a third-party, uh, nominally independent tribunal uh, where these foreign investors could appeal to uh, if they had this situation arise. And they could say, look, uh, this, this foreign government took over our, our, our factory, and we need to be compensated for that. Uh, so that was the idea behind it. The problem is, is that through both drift in the trade agreement process and also through 
just successive rulings and interpretations in these ISDS tribunals, uh, the the ISDS process, which is, stands for Investor State Dispute Settlement, has expanded, as you as you alluded to. And now it's that if a law changes uh, within a foreign country, investors can say, well, that law is causing me uh, to a reduction in my profits that I expected when I made this investment, and you need to compensate me for that loss. Uh, uh, you know, there, there are all sorts of ways in which this is manifested. And now we have ISDS in hundreds of these bilateral agreements. Mm. Um, most of the time it was, you know, developed countries and, and, and developing countries that were in, in, involved in these agreements together. NAFTA was sort of the first time that you had a developed country doing a trade agreement with another developed country that had an ISDS piece in it. Uh-huh. Uh, so the, you had the U.S. <laughs> and Canada engaged uh, in this agreement, and then Canadian companies, which are more mature, could uh, sue uh, the United States uh, in these, for, these, these extrajudicial tribunals for the loss of expected future profits with tribunalists who are corporate lawyers uh, picked in a process whereby uh, they could be working on an ISDS case one day and then sitting in judgment of an ISDS <laughs> case the next day. Oh, so, that's beautiful. And TPP would expand this even further wow. because you have several developed countries, countries involved, Australia, yeah. Japan. Uh, you could have subsidiaries of Chinese companies who happen to be in Malaysia or Vietnam right. uh, with this newfound ability. It would double the amount of countries that could, uh, or uh, the amount of companies that, with foreign investments in the United States that would have the possibility to appeal to this tribunal. So, who are they? Uh, who are they? Ex- Let me stop you for one second. Who are they extracting the money from? Like you can't. Right. Are you suing? Is it so? Say a company. A country. You you're suing the country. Okay, suing, I just wanted people to really uh, understand that exactly. Country. It could be the local government. It could be the state government. Right. Or it could be the federal government. And. Uh, when you uh, the only award that can be given in a de- investor state dispute settlement process is monetary. Uh-huh. There is no sort of other penalty that can be uh, given out in this case, and so uh, the monetary penalty needs to be paid by that government with, wow. through their their you know government treasury, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's at the local level or at the the national level. What if they and, say they don't want to pay? Well, there are mechanisms within these rulings have the effect of the rulings of the highest court in I see. the land. Thank you. Okay. And so there are mechanisms involved whereby, uh, you know, you're involved in a trade agreement with this other country, and then mm-hmm. this, this foreign investor sues you successfully to, to extract money from you. Uh, there are, whether it's the WTO or these international uh, uh, organizations that will uh, demand payment uh, to, to make the system uh, work, uh, or that country can say, you know, you need to give uh, this this investor who, who won this dispute settlement process their award, or we're going to have something to say about it. So mm-hmm. uh, there, it, it's it's I would say more 
you know, you, you always do hear the theory, uh, you know, I, I think Andrew Jackson said uh, about the Supreme Court, well, the Supreme Court made a ruling, now let them try to enforcement. You know, <laughs> right. Like, you and what army? But in this case, given the international system, uh-huh. uh, there, there really are teeth to ISDS rules. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, re- I wanted to get at that because, you know, I think everybody thinks, well, huh, you know, if, if uh, say, uh, say Smithfield, now owned by WH Group, right. um, decided that our new pollution laws in North Carolina, they don't exist, but I'm making this up right. as a hypothetical, um, you know, was a barrier to trade. Could they then sue the American government for lost revenue? And I think you're saying the answer is absolutely yeah, the answer, they can. Yes. I mean, yeah. uh, the, one of the more famous ones that's happening right now is uh, around the Keystone XL pipeline. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, uh, President Obama uh, decided to reject. Well, TransCanada, which mm-hmm. is uh, the, the, the company that was going to install that pipeline, mm. has sued the United States under the ISDS process using NAFTA, mm-hmm. which is a you know, Canada-U.S. agreement, right. uh, for $15 billion Whoa. in lost uh, expected future profits from the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, and that's just an example of how, you know, what the effect is of this. Uh, and, and the fact that this was a case against the United States is significant because traditionally what we've seen, although the ISDS process has grown massively, especially the last 10 years, we've seen more ISDS cases than in uh, the entire timeline up to that point. Wow. Uh, you know, most of them have been structured around weaker countries, uh, that, you know, change their laws for whatever reason, and then there's a pile-on by these foreign investors. Uh-huh. Uh, whether you see it in Greece or Spain or uh, Argentina is the, actually the country that has seen the most ISDS cases against it. Argentina has had this, this fiscal crisis for the last decade. Right. And uh, so, you know, uh, that, that they've, they've been perceived as a weak country. Uh, but here's a case where TransCanada is trying to do the United States, certainly would not be seen internationally as a weak country. Right. But, uh, you know, this would be a precedent-setting ruling if you get uh, a developed country to be forced into this. We have seen that in the past with Germany uh, around its changes in uh, nuclear power uh-huh. laws in Germany. Uh, they were sued under the ISDS process. It's actually triggered a lot of opposition within Germany to trade agreements that would include ISDS, mm-hmm. such as the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which is the U.S.-European uh, Union trade right. deal the that TTIP, is, uh, yeah. separately being negotiated right now. Uh, Germany is on the verge of pulling out of that over specifically over ISDS. Oh, no kidding. How interesting. Yeah. Um, so so there are ways in which, well, okay, I, I, there are so many questions about this. That was that American Prospect piece was really excellent, I have to say. Oh, it really you. helped me a lot um, in understanding these issues. Um, in that piece, you mentioned that the, the so-called non-tariff barrier became a euphemism for ordinary health, safety, environmental, and financial regulations that U.S. corporations wanted to weaken both at home and abroad. How does yes, that absolutely. fit into the ISDS, or is that just a completely separate issue I mean, around negotiating trade sort of deals? The enforcement mechanism. So these trade deals are no longer really about trade. Mm-hmm. They are about smoothing and harmonizing regulations uh, mm. to sort of guarantee profits mm. for foreign investors. Uh, they, they, they are about, you know, putting limits 
on the types of regulation you can in, engage in. And then if you, if you as a country uh, who signed that agreement try to go beyond that, then the ISDS mechanism is sort of the enforcement, mm-hmm. saying, hey, you signed this agreement, you said that you weren't going to disrupt uh, uh, nuclear power, or you weren't going to disrupt uh, this regulation around health and food safety, and you did, and now we're going to sue you for billions and billions of dollars. Uh, and even though the change in law is not a remedy under ISDS, Frequently what happens is the, the, the country says, okay, we will repeal that law, uh-huh. and then the ISDS case gets withdrawn. So right. it's, uh, you know, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office tries to say, well, no laws can be changed through the ISDS process. And while that's true to a certain extent, uh, practically, in, in, in reality, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And we've seen that uh, in, a, in, a, in a similar process in the United States around uh, uh, dolphin-free, dolphin-safe tuna labeling. Uh-huh. Uh, this was a case where uh, this what didn't go through the ISDS process, but actually went through the government of Canada uh, and Mexico, who said that under NAFTA, uh, the, the, these regulations that were put in place by the United States were biasing and discriminating against Canadian and Mexican fishers. Uh, right. uh, and, 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 you know, disrupting their ability to make a profit. And they went through the WTO, and the WTO said, yes, this is discriminatory. And they said, uh, you know, you're going to have to come up with uh, sanctions. Uh, simil- I believe there were $2 billion in sanctions. And what the U.S. Congress promptly did was uh, put forward legislation that passed the House to repeal the Dolphin Safe Tuna Labeling. Just, uh, because it represented now a, a financial risk to mm-hmm. the U.S. Treasury. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is what happens. This, I mean, that is a textbook example right. of what uh, ends up transpiring when uh, a country or a company uh, sues uh, to change a law. Uh, uh, they're, they're, they're suing, uh, you know, nominally for, for you know, money, but really what they want is that law to be repealed, and eventually that's what they get. Well, this is what exactly the playbook uh, by which country of origin labeling was, was lost. Uh, same thing, yeah. Exactly yeah, the exactly same thing. thing. I mean, they, they threatened fines through the WTO, but ultimately they would have evoked the ISDS if the Congress had right, not right. That's backed the down. resort, exactly. Right. I mean, you know, TransCanada probably, you know, in the Keystone XL case, they probably thought, well, the government of Canada is, is, is maybe won't go to bat for us here, so we'll just do it ourselves. Uh-huh. And the difference is, is that, you know, I mean, the same thing. These, they don't have to go through the U.S. court system to set up uh, any kind of uh, ruling that they were, in fact, discriminated against or that they were, in fact, uh, expropriated from. All they have to do is convince this group of corporate lawyers that sit on this tribunal that that was the case and they can win that case right and that's why uh this is becoming increasingly and this was a subject of a huffington post article i wrote about yeah um increasingly the 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 landscape by which financiers decide to bankroll these companies these foreign investors engaging in these lawsuits Right. And uh, do it in such a way that they get paid on the back end if they succeed. 
they're using this ISDS process as a money-making mechanism <laughs> rather than what it was initially designed for, which was a an investor protection mechanism. Right, right. Oh, no, I thought that was fascinating. I, I mean, if there's more to say about that, let's let's because basically you were saying that they bundle together or what will happen is that a third party investor will say, oh, wow, I see a risk to you here. I will absorb the costs of bringing this litigation through the ISDS mechanism right. and then. If it, if it pays out, then I get a chunk of that change. Is that That's how it absolutely works? absolutely right. That's exactly how it works. Uh, <laughs> and there's an, there are entire firms uh, known wow. as litigation finance firms that, you know, pour through legislation in these foreign countries mm-hmm. and find ways in which companies could make ISDS claims, and then they bring them to these companies as a package deal here. Here's the rule that, that has been changed that you could argue. Uh-huh. Here are the lawyers that you can use in that case. Here are the tribunalists who you could suggest to sit on that tribunal. No way. It's a three-judge panel, and one of them gets chosen by the company. <laughs> one of them typically gets chosen by the country, and then they decide on the other one. So these litigation finance firms are bringing this huge package deal. Here's mm-hmm. here's the law. Here are the lawyers. Here are the judges. Yeah. And 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 here's all you have to do. We'll we'll pay for it. Right. So it won't cost your corporate treasury anything, and we reap the rewards on the back end. And uh, this is a fast growing part of this ISDSS, and I think it accounts for at least some of the rise in ISDS cases over the last 10 years. Oh, uh, indisputably. I mean, I don't see how it could not be part of that that program. Um, let's talk for a minute, though. When So when a country, when a uh, company successfully sues uh, and invokes ISDS, um, then obviously the country at fault with the changing rules or whatever has to pony up a big chunk of change. Right. And that chunk of change comes out of, as you said earlier, the national treasury, the federal treasury. Right. So, so in other words, these are, are taxpayers. Right. The taxpayer yeah. is footing the bill for this. Ultimately, taxpayers are bearing the cost. And this is really a problem because if you yeah. look at what ISDS really is, it's insurance. Yeah. It's, it's saying that I am a foreign investor and I have certain risks that I am taking on by investing in this foreign country. And the ISDS process is my protection against that risk. So I can sue if uh, events change and conspire against me and I can and recoup my investment and, and what I expected to get out of it. The insurance industry is well-equipped to handle the protection of that risk. Uh-huh. And the difference would be instead of taxpayers in that country being on the hook uh, for any, any cost borne by that system, it would be privately administered through the insurance industry, through the imposition of premiums, uh, and if the ISDS, uh, uh, or not the ISDS, if the foreign investor runs into a problem, he could trigger, trigger his insurance policy, and the insurance company would have to pay out rather than uh, the taxpayers of a country having to right. pay out. Right. Uh, it, there is no reason why anything in the ISDS system couldn't be handled by an insurance policy. 
Well, no reason except for greed, essentially. I mean, because except because it's easier. Yeah. Yeah, it's much better to have a taxpayer pay. Taxpayers on the hook than to put private interests on the hook. Oh my God! No question about it. Absolutely. And that is why you're seeing this turned into a game for profit. That's yeah. why you're seeing the, both third-party finance, and you're also seeing hedge funds and private equity firms buy up companies that they think will have an ISDS claim in the future mm-hmm. solely for the purpose to, you know, initiate that claim and reap rewards from it. And we have many examples of this uh, in Spain when solar subsidies were being phased out. Yeah. Years after the subsidies uh, phase-out began, uh, hedge funds bought solar companies and then sued under ISDS. You see a similar situation in the Dominican Republic and, and many countries around the world uh, where, you know, the, you're buying a company not because of it, its ability to produce uh, uh, goods and services, but you're buying it so it can sue the government. I mean, that's the sole reason. Wow. <laughs> it's literally breathtaking. I must say you put it out really well there, David. I mean, wow, we. So when I think when I read this stuff, you know, like your articles and some of the other things I've read about uh, ISDS and, and just sort of how trade deals are structured in total secret. I mean, like mm-hmm. really secretive. Well, I don't know why that is, but it all makes me feel like there is this giant capitalist overlord uh, that has essentially done away with boundaries and national, you know, interests and is really just going for the, you know, governing the world economy through mechanisms well, like this. I mean, there's no question that there's a framework that has been set up, this sort of international framework uh, for the smooth traveling of capital mm-hmm. uh, across national borders uh, and the protection of that capital through extra judicial processes. And that's really what the modern trade regime uh, and trade consensus has looked like. And what we've seen over the past couple years is that that consensus has begun to break down. And you can can add Brexit to this. Right. You can add, uh, obviously, the the disarray in which uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was expected to sort of sail through, has fallen into with uh, opposition from all the major party candidates uh, for president. Um, This consensus is starting to wind down, in part because of the attention being paid to mechanisms like ISDS, where corporations can can sue governments, uh, and, and, and things like that. The fact that people are starting to understand that these trade agreements aren't about trade and they aren't about creating jobs, but they're about, you know, guaranteeing profits for large multinational corporations that need to site their their headquarters and factories in wherever is cheapest for them. Right. Uh, that has started to become part of the conversation. And, and, and I think this is an important moment, uh, yeah. you know, to see where the future of 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 our our you know this consensus and this this international system will go mm. uh people are getting you know more educated on this issue and the more they see of it the less they like of it 
Yeah, I mean, for this particular moment in the election cycle, it's it's you know it's um, profitable for both Re- Republicans and Democrats to repudiate uh, these trade deals. But I, uh, I, I don't see that uh, that there's any pending legislation or suggestions on the part of Congress. And please correct me if I'm wrong. That would suggest that some of these. I mean, they. It's. I mean, as we, as we talked about at the top of the hour, the TPP expanded. ISDS. Um, right. And so and so even though they might be paying lip service right now to how bad these deals are, and oh, no, it's, you know, shipping more jobs overseas, they don't give a shit about that. I mean... Well, we'll <laughs> see. I mean, uh, you know, the, the idea that the Obama administration has is that they will let all these hot passions go, and then in the mm-hmm. lame duck session, during the holidays, when no one's paying attention, they'll quietly pass the Trans-Pacific Partnership and push it through. I don't know that they actually have the ability to do that, that they have the votes to do that. Right. Um, And uh, I think that what, you know, Trump has done to turn a a typically very supportive party in terms of trade Mm -hmm. uh, against deals like this has been very significant. Uh, the, the, The individuals in Congress still have to think about their next election. Uh, even though the lame duck session is a time of, of, of the least possible accountability uh, <laughs> for things like this. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you even look at, at Hillary Clinton's book in 2014, before she even announced as a candidate, she showed in that book reservations with, particularly with ISDS. Uh-huh. Uh, and so... There is a possibility here for to to redefine uh, globalization, to redefine uh, the the nature of these trade agreements in a way that makes sense uh, for the the workers in this country mm-hmm. and uh, and and you know and 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 moves forward that way. There's actually been uh, a an, a paper written by Lori Wallach of Global Trade Watch, who is probably the most knowledgeable person on this in the country uh-huh. uh, from a progressive perspective, and uh, Jared Bernstein, who was Vice President Biden's uh, economic advisor sure. uh, in the first term of the, Clinton administra- of the Obama administration. And they put together this progressive view on trade and what it would need to do to actually be you know, something where we don't disengage from the world, sure. but we also do it in such a way that would be beneficial to our workers yeah. uh, and beneficial to the, the rights of labor, the rights of the environment, and things of that nature. Uh, the, this is a really important document because it brings forth these strands from the progressive left and also from, you know, the, the policymaking mm-hmm. engine. Uh, and someone like a, a Bernstein to get involved in this uh, you're sort of bringing together these different parts of the Democratic coalition to build this possibility for the future. So I would like to see that get out there and, and, uh-huh. and you know, uh, pick up some traction, uh, because the truth is, is that something is going to have to happen. I, I don't believe that the votes are there on TPP. Uh-huh. Uh, and a Clinton administration is going to sort of have to go back to the drawing board and figure out. Uh, if they want to to continue to push these deals, how they're going to do it. And, uh, you know, this paper could offer uh, a way forward. 
Well, I, I hope so. And I, I certainly will look it up and read it uh, with interest. It's a little bit off of my topic, but still, I mean, I'm really interested in trade. But I, you know, I... Um, my research into sort of how companies, you know, race to the bottom in terms of, uh, you know, going to the cheapest place, why we've outsourced all these jobs, obviously, is because we can get cheaper labor elsewhere. There are yep. less environmental regulations and so forth. Um, and I unless trade agreements begin to sort of level some of that playing field, um, I, I don't see that they're ever going to really amount to much more than just corporate greed grabs. Right. Um I would tell you another area, and this is particularly true in agriculture, which mm-hmm. I know you're interested in, uh, is to use the laws that we've had on the books for the last century uh, around antitrust. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is <laughs> a, a growing field of interest, mm-hmm. I think, on the Democratic side. Um, uh, it's oh, definitely. It's certainly the case that uh, with respect to agriculture, you have these these uh, large firms that squeeze their producers into, uh, you know, the tournament system for chicken and, right. and things like that. Absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, this is very important in terms of taking it, – it's not just the, the ways in which uh, producers are getting squeezed. It's really taking away their economic liberty. There was a time yeah. when uh, a, a, chi- a poultry producer or a beef producer – uh, would have the freedom to go to market and get the proper price uh, for the goods that they, they, they were selling. And now that, because of the intermediary uh, position of big agriculture, has been totally taken away. That's right. Uh, and it's, it's very disempowering and it's very, you know, uh, uh, troublesome in this in this. Oh, sure. The monopolization. I mean, you've taken away every access to any other producer. It's it's more than just economically, because obviously it has an economic impact, but there's a a sort of cultural impact Mm -hmm. to this, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, using the Sherman Act to break up these big agriculture monopolies, using it for you know, the big monopolies that we see right. in the airline industry or the cable industry or all, I mean, you name a sector and it's pretty <laughs> it's well, heavily concentrated right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we had a Justice Department antitrust division and a Federal Trade Commission that actually engaged on these issues and, 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 and injected competition back into uh, our system of, of the economy, uh, you you could see some really wide ranging changes. Oh, I agree. And we know because we've seen it. Like during the New Deal, this uh, 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 this was this this was part of the system that was set up that led to broad based prosperity for forty years. And then That's right. uh, uh, when Reagan got in, there the the rules by which uh, uh, antitrust policy went through were completely changed. And uh, uh, we've seen massive market concentration over the last 30 years. And Most so definitely. I think the ways in which those two play together, antitrust and trade, because when a corporation gets, is allowed to get this big, suddenly not only do they have, obviously, uh, more economic power, mm-hmm. but they also have more political power. Oh, yeah. And they use that political power to get... Uh, to get their way, and, and one of the ways they do that is they guarantee uh, their ability to go abroad and make profits 
uh, and, and sort of abandon this country uh, in terms of its workers, in terms of its tax base and things like that. So yeah. uh, they, they do play together. Yes, absolutely. Very well said. I hope you'll be writing an article about that soon. Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Thank you for the assignment, Beth. Yeah. I've, written, I've written extensively on antitrust. So, uh, well, I, you know, direct me. I mean, send me some links because I'd love to talk to you more about this at the next time. I think for now we should probably wrap it up. Um, yeah. But I, I hope you'll be a regular guest, David. This is your wonderful speaker, very clear and understandable, even for a non-financial mind like my own. Um, and certainly you've, you know, you've, connected some dots that I think otherwise people would not necessarily connect. So I thank you so much for joining me. Um, this is the point where you get to promote yourself shamelessly. Okay. And so if you have a um, website, if you have a blog, to do that, do so, it. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, I did have a book that came out in May and it was about the foreclosure crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so not exactly what we were talking about, but certainly uh, an important issue. Uh, it's called Chain of Title, as you said, uh, three or- how three ordinary Americans uncovered Wall Street's great foreclosure fraud. And if you go on Amazon or, or wherever you buy books, uh, you can find Chain of Title. Uh, as you mentioned, I have an, uh, a newsletter uh, uh-huh. that I send out through email that gives you links to all the stories I do. So I write it a few different places. If you don't want to just constantly have to check those over and over again, I send you the links two times a week to the stories that I've written. Uh, and and the way to get on that is uh, through tinyletter.com. That's all one word, tinyletter.com, slash David Dayen, D-A-V-I-D-D-A-Y-E-N. Excellent. And uh, uh, you'll get signed up to the newsletter, and, and that goes out uh, Wednesdays and Fridays, uh, and you get the links to everything that I do. I'm also on Twitter, and I'm usually sending my links out right when they're published. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is at twitter.com slash D-D-A-Y-E-N. That's my uh, handle, at D-Dayen. Okay, very good. Well, we'll be Twittering out this particular link in a very short order. Um, Great. <laughs> and I hope you'll do the same. And uh, I want to thank my sponsor, which is uh, New York State Grants and... Um, what am I saying? New York State grown and certified seal. Thanks to my sponsor, David. Thank you very much for joining me today. Okay, Katie, um, it was a pleasure. Thank it you. really was an interesting talk, and we'll we'll be having one again soon. I'll be signing up for your newsletter, and I hope everybody else will too. And uh, we'll see you next week, folks, with another great show. Uh, you and Katie giving you the real deal on how we eat and where it comes from. See you next week. Have a good week, folks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thank you.